Chapter Seven of the Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Isn't it nice? Isn't it nice? This was what she said to James Ward, a little pink and white girl who could hardly reach to his elbow. Not an intellectual girl at all, one who knew almost as little about Rome as did the young man before whom she stood save that she had a fashionable seminary education, and knew the names of things tolerably well. A girl who frizzed her hair when frizzes were the height of the fashion, and banged it when that style was in vogue. A girl who wore trains one day, or round dresses reaching just to the tops of her boots the next, according to the dictates of the most fashionable dressmaker whose advice she could ask. If you had been going to select a woman to give an impetus to a dawning intellectual sense, the last person you would probably have chosen would have been this small pretty Amy Allison, with features like the latest Parisian doll, expression and all. Yet those three words, spoken in the softest of feminine voices, were destined by fate, or no, let us be reasonable beings, and say by providence, to work as complete a transformation in the plans and purposes and final destination of james ward as can possibly be imagined how could they do it well who can account for these things or explain the subtle law by which they work it was not that james ward fell in love with this small bit of flesh and blood beside him whatever that coarse expression may mean to those initiated it was not that he realized any special personality in the matter it was simply that he had watched young men and young women heretofore from a distance they up a story or two at least he below looking up never by any chance beside them he had seen this very girl at church seated in her father's pew shielded by her father's presence surrounded by an atmosphere of respectability and choiceness he had seen young men her friends and companions greet her familiarly on passing in or out he had from his seat in the gallery or his position in the upper hall looked down on all this and still felt himself looking up not down it had all been above him this he had never reasoned over but simply in a dulled sort of way felt accepted as a kind of necessity of circumstance now he stood beside her in a carefully adorned parlour she surrounded as usual by that atmosphere of safe pure respectability professor monteith on one side mrs dayton allen on the other and mr bennett whom every one spoke of as destined to be a brilliant young lawyer just in front of them and she had looked up to him james ward and said isn't it nice do you see what i mean there came at that moment to the young man a sudden revelation of the fact that there need be no precipice between him and all this safe nicety, he forever below and they above. This small, pretty girl stood on a level with him now, nay, looked up to him literally, and addressed him as one of them. What was there to hinder his trying for a place that would make it a matter of course for her and all such to at least greet him on a level? I declare to you that, so insensibly had this motherless young man slipped downhill, he had never realized that there was a time when he was not necessarily down there, and there had never occurred to him before a possibility of climbing back. He had accepted his worthlessness as an inevitable birthright. 
Amy Allison would simply have laughed had she known how her good-natured little question set his pulses to throbbing. Yet Amy Allison never had so great reason to be proud of her brainless little frizzes as on that night when they helped to awaken the energies of an immortal soul. He looked down at her, this boy of about nineteen, on this girl of seventeen, who had been miles above him always heretofore, with a curious feeling that he was older by years than he had ever been before, and that she was younger. "'What is nice?' he said. He hadn't the least idea how to talk with a young lady. He had no sister, and the few girls whom he knew well enough to shout a greeting to in the streets, as he passed them, he felt now that he wished he did not know at all. "'Why, this idea, all of it, the meeting together and talking and studying it over, and having such grand men as Professor Monteith and Mr. Bennett and all those to help us.' "'Us! Whom did she mean by that word so glibly used? Actually herself and him, James Ward? It sounded like it. Did he think it was nice?' He had told himself not three minutes ago that he was a fool for being there, and that he would never be caught in that trap again. It was one of the many revulsions of feeling that he had endured. He suddenly resolved to be sincere, and see what answer he would get. I suppose it is nice for you people who know all about these things, but I am nothing but an ignoramus. I never took kindly to any books this sentence closing with a half-bitter laugh. "'Oh, I don't know much about these things,' her sentence closed with a little laugh, too, not a bitter one, though, fresh and girlish. "'Don't you?' He looked down at her now, smiling partly at the pretty features, and partly at himself, in wonder, that he felt so much at ease talking with a well-dressed young lady who belonged to the upper circles. "'No, I don't, really.' I used to study history in school, of course, but I always rather hated it. It seemed so dull, you see. My little sister was asking me only this afternoon what was the principal river in Rome, and do you believe I could tell her? I'm glad I have discovered this evening. I know so much now, anyway. I think it would be nice to know one new thing every day, don't you?' He hadn't a clear idea what he thought, except that for some reason utterly unknown to himself, it gave him intense pleasure to hear her confess her ignorance of Rome. Some way it reduced the precipice that was between him and people. Why did this fair bit of flesh stand talking with him when Mr. Bennet stood almost at her elbow and was entirely willing to talk with her? Oh, the reason was simple enough. Little Miss Annie had been a good deal astonished, possibly a trifle scandalized, when she saw the ward boys march into the room. Why, everybody knew they were just street loungers. As for Paul, he was not on a level enough with her social horizon for her to know him at all. She had been in a puzzle for some seconds over the others, but when Dr. Monteith actually laid aside his books, and arose and shook hands with them, and gave them a general introduction to the company, little Amy settled it behind her frizzes that they must be rather nice after all. Anyway, people whom Dr. Monteith introduced were to be talked to, for the time being at least. So she talked to James Ward because she happened to be standing nearest to him when the circle broke up. It was all a happen, then? 
yes just as much of a happen as anything is in this carefully planned world well it helped to send james ward home looking thoughtful joe put his hands in his pockets and whistled what he thought about anything he kept to himself until they reached their favorite corner then he halted waited for the two who were coming along in silence behind him and said let's go in and have a smoke and talk it over whether it was miss amy's influence or the combined influences of the entire evening that made his brother james so unusually gruff i cannot tell certain it is he answered with most unnecessary bearishness i won't do it i'm going home joe though generally good-natured was not proof against such uncalled-for growls as this and answered promptly bow wow go right along come in paul and have a soothing puff i'll stand treat can't said paul laconically why not oh because i can't it's late i'm going home it isn't late either it's just a few minutes after ten well that's a few minutes later than i generally am i don't mean to stop nowhere to-night so you needn't coax it was the quiet tone of decision that meant just what it said oh bother joe said you're both cracked to-night and he too made a virtue of necessity and went home it was unusually early for the ward boys and as their father lying awake heard them stumbling upstairs in the darkness he wondered with a gloomy sigh what those fellows had been about now to get in so early as for the widow adams her pillow was wet and her nose was red and her eyes were sore all because of tears that had dropped dropped in a slow desolate way ever since half-past eight when she had turned her lamp down until it gave one dim wink and went to bed to wait and watch for the coming of her idol the worst had come at last she felt it in every nerve the ruin that had been menacing her so long was about to burst upon her in what form she had been fruitful in conjecturing certainly there was no danger of her being taken by surprise for she had had her boy brought home shot drowned in the creek thrown from a disreputable carriage with all his ribs broken carried helplessly intoxicated in the arms of two boon companions all this since half-past eight and it was only ten how late would her nerves hold out what else was there for her to imagine oh don't laugh at poor sad-hearted widow adams send your only boy out to walk at night over streets spread with snares and pitfalls at every step as our large towns are and see how you will feel her poor elbow was sore with its duties of lifting her up and letting her down again as she listened while step after step crunched on the gravel outside and none of them were his he won't come till midnight at the very shortest she murmured he said he would be late i knew what that meant i've been expecting and expecting it then the weak tears dropped the widow adams was too enfeebled in body too utterly worn out with hard work even to cry hard it was fifteen minutes after ten by the old-fashioned clock in the corner when she raised herself for the fiftieth time on that much enduring elbow to say oh dear that's his step and then no it isn't oh dear me but this time she added yes it is i'd know his step anywhere even if it was unsteady oh dear 
Then the door was carefully opened. Mother, a steady, low-toned voice, are you asleep? Don't get up. I see the lamp. All right. Good night. And he clambered up the steep staircase. Then the tears came faster, in very astonishment and satisfaction. Yes, his step was steady once more, and his voice was steady. There was no smell of liquor came in at the door with him. She hated liquor, did this long-suffering widow Adams. She could detect its scent, it seemed to her, almost miles away. But then, he has been somewhere that he oughtn't to have went, she said drearily, or else he would have told me about it. Oh, dear me! I can re-echo it from my soul. Oh, dear me, that in our Christian country mothers' hearts have to be wrung by so many terrors that are so liable to be. As for Paul Adams, he was unusually quiet. He whistled not a note as he made steady preparations for bed. His mind was full of grave thoughts. There was no room for whistling. The problem looming up before him that he intended in his heart to meet and conquer was, how shall I go to work to get a Merivale's history of Rome? It was an actual fact, though a lamentable one, that Paul, almost young man as he was, with a widowed mother whom, by all means of Christianity or civilization, he should have supported, had no settled business in life, nothing definite to do, save to split the kindlings when there were any to split, work in the garden when his mother could coax him to do it, shovel paths when he had to, and pick up odd jobs as they chanced to fall in his way. His mother, poor thing, comforted her heart by saying with her lips that it was a dreadful bad town for poor folks. There was her Paul couldn't find any work from one month's end to another. Down deep in her heart she knew that there was nothing that Paul tried for so little as something to do. Also she knew that Farmer Judkins, who had known her in her girlhood, and who occasionally brought her a bushel of apples or a spare rib, said as soon as he got out of the house, "'Show what a worthless coot he is. I'd risk, but he'd find something to do if he wanted it.' All the same, the mother respected Farmer Judkins for keeping his lips closed before her. Even she did not know what spasmodic efforts had been made in her favor by the carpenter around the corner, offering Paul steady wages, small indeed but steady, for steady work. Paul had shrugged his shoulders and said, "'I don't believe you better try me, Mr. Tucker. I ain't steady at anything but eating and sleeping.' but this episode his mother didn't know. On the evening in question, one of the boy's employments seemed to be deserting him. He could not get to sleep. Through the moonlight he could count every knot in the wood of the unfinished room, and for a time he could not fix his mind on anything but the act of counting them. "'What the mischief do I care how many there are?' he said aloud and angrily at last, and then he set himself to work in earnest to find what it was that was keeping him awake. And, strange as the experience was to him, he discovered that he still wanted very much indeed a Merivale on Rome. Why? Ah, that was what he could not have explained to you. He had had a glimpse into another world, and he liked it. But he had by no means as yet decided that it could be other than glimpses which would fall to his share. 
Nevertheless, the determination grew to secure a Merivale in some way. "'I wonder how much the thing costs,' he asked himself, and asked in vain, having less knowledge of the market value of books than of almost any other thing. A few moments of silent thought induced the next explosive sentence. "'Folks that are at work making money, getting regular wages, can buy books when they want em. It seems a strange thing to say, but really Paul Adams was getting his first touch of respect for labor, by reason of forcing himself to think of its remarkable results. What else he thought, as he lay there staring at the posts of the old-fashioned bedstead, he kept to himself, only announcing the result in the tone which the ward boys called his stubborn one, and from which they knew there was no appeal. I vum I'll do it to-morrow morning. Then he turned on his side and went to sleep. Meantime, pretty little Miss Amy Allison simpered home in the moonlight with young Bennett, the law student, and tried to be wise and talk about Rome with its seven hills, and was duly flattered by the attention which the brilliant young man bestowed on her, but acknowledged in her secret soul that she felt more comfortable while talking with James Ward. It was a little difficult to keep the seven hills located where they ought to be, and not to confuse the Vatican and the Apennines, not being entirely sure as yet which either word represented. Now, with James Ward, it had not mattered. "'By the by,' said her companion, suddenly leaving Rome and coming down to Centerville, "'how did those Ward boys and that Adams youngster happen to stray into our gathering, do you suppose?' "'I'm sure I don't know. Wasn't it funny?' with an amused little laugh. "'Rather. I presume they felt somewhat like the historical fishes we occasionally hear about. I saw you trying to make talk with one of the wards. How did you succeed?' "'Why, he talked quite well,' Miss Amy said hesitatingly, not sure of her ground. Perhaps this was an absurd thing to say to the brilliant young man.' "'Did he, indeed? I am surprised to hear it. I didn't suppose he had two ideas in common with people having brains.' How many brains had Miss Amy had he been able to measure them? Young Bennett didn't know, but he knew she was a pleasant little thing to walk home with. As for Caroline, young Robert Fenton got out his cap and walked home with her, his mother remarking as she stood in the door and looked after them, that she wished young men had common sense. Why didn't Mr. Bennett see her safely home? It was right in his way, and that simpering little Amy might have thought of and proposed it to him if she had any brains. And her husband had laughed and replied, You are good at planning, Martha, but when you get young Bennett to come down from his height long enough to walk home with Mrs. Chester's Caroline, let me know. End of chapter 7